The English Civil Wars, The Final King, and the Aftermath, William III. Well, there was no general uprising when William arrived, neither against him nor in his favor. The majority of Englishmen dreaded the thought of war and waited to see what James would do. As William moved slowly towards London, the royal army was faced with the choice of retreating in front of him or spilling the first blood. Rather than fight, they retreated, and as they retreated, their numbers melted away until there was nothing between William and the capital. James had joined his troops at Salisbury, but he was sick at heart, and when John Churchill, his best commander, went over to William, he made his way back to London. His daughter Anne had already deserted him, and fearing to meet his father's fate, James tried to slip away to France on December the 11th. Much to William's embarrassment, he was captured by some fishermen who brought him back again but he was given every encouragement to make a second attempt, and this time he succeeded. On December the 23rd, he took the boat from Rochester and two days later landed in France. Once James had gone, elections were held so that Parliament could meet and decide the fate of the nation. Technically speaking, the assembly that met in February of 1689 was not a Parliament, since the king had never summonsed it, but the convention, as it was called, had as much real power as any legitimate Parliament. It was not a revolutionary body. Many of the members had been elected by Tory borough councils and were reluctant to accept the fact that James was gone. They wanted to make William regent for the absent king, and when he refused this, they tried to preserve the principle of hereditary descent by making Mary queen in her own right. But William had the last word. Unless he was crowned king and his wife queen, he threatened to take himself and his army back to Holland and leave the ungrateful English to solve their problems alone. This threat was sufficient. The convention hastily made a formal offer of the throne to William and Mary. William III was a thin-faced, long-nosed man, aged 39. Like his grandfather, Charles I, he was cold and aloof, not easy to know or to love, and he had constantly to struggle with against ill health. But he was an excellent judge of men and knew exactly what he wanted. His aloofness was softened by the charms of his 27-year-old wife. The fact that Mary was James's daughter and an Anglican reconciled many Tories to the new rulers, and William strengthened by his wife's obvious devotion to him. The glorious revolution of 1688, carried through without spilling one drop of blood, was the work of Anglicans and nonconformists, Whigs and Tories. They had united against James's tyranny, and while they welcomed the new king and queen, they hastily drew up a list of limitations on the crown to protect themselves against any future attacks on their liberties. The Bill of Rights, as this list was called, marks the point in which property owners in Parliament, who had been growing in strength throughout the 17th century, turned the scales against the crown. The power which James had claimed to dispense with and suspend laws was declared illegal. So was the court he'd set up to rule the church, but also was a standing army without Parliament's permission. The bill laid down that Roman Catholics should, in the future, be barred from the English throne and to make sure that no king would ever attempt to tell commons what they might or might not discuss, it was declared that the freedom of speech in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. The Church of England, which had been tied so closely to the Stuart monarchy and had preached the duty of subjects to obey their divinely appointed ruler, was shaken by the revolution. Six bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury and four of the famous seven who were tried by James II, gave up their livings rather than take the oath of allegiance to William and Mary. They were followed by 400 of the clergy and formed the group known as the Non-Jurors. 
The nonconformists, many of whom helped William, expected some reward for their loyalty. By the Toleration Act, they were permitted to hold their own services, but the Anglican gentry who controlled Parliament were not prepared to relax the laws forbidding nonconformists to take part in public affairs. Roman Catholics were still officially denied freedom of worship, though in fact they were not persecuted after 1689, but they remained, like the nonconformists, banned from public life. The revolution was welcomed by the Scottish lowlands, where the Presbyterians had bitterly opposed James's revival of the Roman Catholicism, and William was offered the Scottish crown. But the Highland clans, many of whose chiefs were Catholic and loyal to the Stuart cause, were not easily won over to the new rulers. They routed William's troops at Kilcranky in 1689, and the king ordered the building of Fort William as a base from which the wild north region could gradually be brought under control. His agent in Scotland, looking for some opportunity to demonstrate the power of his master's government, ordered the chieftains to take an oath of allegiance to William and Mary. All did so on time, except MacDonald of Glencoe, who arrived late. He was singled out for punishment. Royal troops were billeted in the MacDonald clan, and at a given signal suddenly turned on their hosts and massacred them. The acts of brutality, like the massacre at Glencoe, prevented the growth of friendship between England and Scotland. So did the failure of what is known as the Darien Scheme of 1699, when English commercial jealousy and William's desire to avoid offending Spain forced the Scots to abandon a trading colony they had established at enormous expense on the Isthmus of Panama. Tempers flared up and three English seamen were arrested in Leith on a trumped-up charge and executed. William realized that the only way in which he could put an end to these disputes was by uniting the two countries, but he died before he could bring this to pass. Not until 1707 were all the difficulties overcome. The Act of Union of that year welded the two nations together. Under its provisions, Scottish MPs were to sit in Parliament at Westminster, and Scotsmen were allowed to share the trading privileges that England had acquired. Scotland kept her own code of laws and her own Presbyterian church, but the frontier between the two countries lost any real significance. The hostility of many centuries very slowly gave way to cooperation and friendship. Ireland, like Scotland, had been united by England by Cromwell, but at the Restoration the Union was broken and the Protestant-Irish Parliament once again ruled over the Catholic majority. Confiscations which had taken place under Cromwell were confirmed, and the English remained in possession of most of the land. James brought hope to the Irish by appointing a Roman Catholic as Lord Lieutenant and allowing freedom of worship. The result was, while England welcomed William III, Ireland continued to recognize James II, except for the Protestant minority in Ulster. James landed in Ireland in March of 1689, hoping to win the whole country over so he could then use it as a base for the reconquest of England. But Londonderry stubbornly refused to surrender and defied James's besieging forces for over three months. Meanwhile, William sent an army into Ireland and landed there himself in June of 1690. A month later, he met James's forces at Drogheda and put them to flight in the Battle of the Boyne. James gave up hope and returned to France. By 1691, Ireland had been subdued. Many Irish Catholics despaired of finding happiness in the land of their birth and took service with the armies of the Catholic King of France. Those who remained were subjected to ruthless penal laws that made them once again no better than slaves in their own country. And so we'll pick this up next time and, and finish William III, Gavillimus. Now the sources for this, the 
History of England by Thornton Lockyer and Smith, and then the History of England by Wilson, that's spelled W-I-L-L-S-O-N, and then I have several books that are on each of the individual kings. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.